Pharmacia Dose, the Critical Care Podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN, and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. And it's a two for Friday with October Trials of the Week. And up next on today's episode is a more recent Trial of the Week, looking at the effect of antipsychotic use on ICU patient outcomes. Grace Erdman, the PGY2 resident of the year for the 2023 Pharmacy to Dose Awards, joins me to highlight the AID ICU trial published in 2022 in the New England Journal of Medicine. We set the scene and discussed the delirium research that led to the ICU, the AID ICU study, and then of course review the study methodology and findings before discussing delirium research priorities, how this trial affects our use of haloperidol, and much, much more. Uh, of note, of course, happy Pharmacy Week. Uh, at Pharmacy to Dose, if you are a social media follower, you have seen that all this week we've been giving away copies of Andrea Sikor's book, Pay It Forward, as a way to celebrate. So if you're not a follower, get on that. But uh, if you are, be sure to to enter. It's Friday. You could still enter by a, a quick retweet or repost of today's um message. So uh, sorry for delay on episodes more in the split trial of the week episode, just a few things going on personally, but back and better than ever, because it's an award winning trial of the week with our award winning guest. And it starts right now. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And with us now for our October trial of the week is Grace Erdman. Now, Grace is a medical ICU clinical specialist at Leahy Hospital and Medical Center. You can find her on Twitter at Grace Erdman. And listeners of the podcast, that should be a familiar name. That is correct. Resident no more, but she is the 2023 PGY2 Resident of the Year winner for the first annual Pharmacy to Dose Awards, and it feels like one of those, if you win an award, you're required to come on the podcast itself, so I was able to use that card to get Grace to join us today, so how are you doing? Oh my goodness, I'm amazing. I never actually thought I would be asked to be a guest, so this is, uh, I feel like I've peaked. <laughs> oh, the honor is ours. I'm so glad you came and joined us. Uh, first things first. How did uh, how did the belt live up to the standards and the pictures that you saw in your like uh, in your mind or things before you got it? 
Oh, it was even better. Like I couldn't see a lot of the details, I think mostly because my computer was a little pixelated when you presented it to me, but it's beautiful. And I didn't realize that you made those on your homemade. own. So kudos to you. Homemade. <laughs> my wife together. can't even get credit. I did it all. A hundred percent. I know it's the, probably the most creative Very thing impressive. I've ever done in my life. A hundred percent. Well, I think uh, when I eventually get my office, I will certainly be displaying it for everyone to see. <laughs> Love that. Love that. Definitely deserves prime time. Now, I uh, I wanted to have some fun with Grace. So uh, we're doing a Boston kind of would you rather in a sense. So uh, the two famous Massachusetts foods, right? You have the lobster roll and clam chowder. So Grace, if you could only have one of those. Right. And the other one you're never allowed to eat again. What are you choosing? What's the what's the king of the Boston food since you've been there a couple months now? Hands down, I would go with the lobster roll. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, since we're not in Maine, I'm still going to have to pay an arm and a leg for it. But <laughs> I will never pass up a lobster roll. Not once. Yeah, because even if it's winter time, you can still like a lobster roll could hit still hit good every now and then. But like clam chowder on a hundred and five degree day just does not like hit right. So yeah, yeah not, not quite. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So the real reason we are here today, the aid ICU trial, our trial of the week. So let's set the scene before we dive into that. And up until this point. Grace, what would you say is kind of the highest quality trial or literature we had regarding the use of haloperidol for the treatment of delirium up until kind of this publication of the eight ICU trial? Yeah, so up until this point, it would probably be the Mind USA study. And that was the one, you know, looked at just over 500 patients comparing uh, ziprazidone and haloperidol with uh, placebo. And looking to see if we were able to uh, reduce the duration of delirium in those patients if we were dosing at Q12 hours. And the the Mind USA study, right? I think if you're unfamiliar with that literature, right? We have the Aid USA now. You'd probably in your mind think the Mind USA trial probably showed some real benefits with it, right? But Gray, what did that trial ultimately find? Well, what did the Mind ICU trial ultimately find? Unfortunately, that trial found no statistical significance. The primary outcome looking at days alive without delirium, um, so really not different across any of the groups. Uh, and then looking at some of those secondary outcomes, we actually saw some more side effects uh, in those patients that were getting the antipsychotics. So primarily uh, ziprazidone, I believe, is the one that had the most QTC prolongation. Uh, but overall, we didn't really see a whole lot of benefit from giving those drugs. Yeah, and... As we as we talk about like not only the results of that Mind USA study, but I think in delirium research in general, it can be challenging, right? Because, you know, what evidence would you say is there for like haloperidol in delirium? Is there pool data? Because I think some people might on the surface be like, well, we have these studies showing maybe, maybe not. What led us to this eight ICU study? Yeah, so there was actually an eight ICU inception study that was published by the same group. Uh, and so they were looking at the use of haloperidol, knowing that, you know, despite the fact that we don't have recommendations to support using it, they were looking to see what variables were associated with its use, 
were there any subgroups where there was benefit? Um, and what they actually found, there was no significant difference in terms of mortality benefit, but uh, the analysis showed that there was actually trend towards improvement in those patients who were getting pelliparidol, uh, which really sort of opened this door back up for them to want to explore more, it seems like. And I love that you brought that up, the 2018 intensive care medicine study, the uh, essentially right there, basis for the study that we are talking about now. And I think I wanted to set the scene with some of this research because delirium is multifactorial and, and a trial to show a true benefit from a treatment can be complicated. So if you're introducing this and you're talking about some of these previous studies, it's like, wait a minute, why are we even talking about this? So as we kind of take a step back, look at some of the evidence, I just want to highlight that I would say research in this field is probably more complicated than others because of all of the contributing factors and confounders that could potentially influence what we're seeing here. Uh, But that kind of leads us into our New England Journal of Medicine, October uh, 2022, right? So published uh, this month last year, uh, trial of the week, the haloperidol for the treatment of delirium in ICU patients. Now, I'm going to go over kind of some of the the background and methodology of the study, and then Grace is going to kind of come back, highlight anything that I maybe missed, and uh, talk about what this study ultimately found. So uh, international multi-center blinded randomized parallel group placebo controlled clinical trial, all the, all the buzzwords, all the great things that we like, uh, took place in six countries across Europe, uh, and inclusion criteria, uh, was about as broad in a study as this could be, right? Adult ICU patients testing positive for delirium via a screening test. So would that say either the CAM ICU or the ICDSC screening tool to determine if you're positive or negative? A couple key exclusion criteria, uh, antipsychotic use prior to admission, uh, inability to complete the delirium assessment. So, you know, coma came to my mind, but the authors point out language barrier, which is definitely a big thing, as well as uh, allergies or contraindications to uh, haloperidol. So uh, eligible patients, they were randomized one-to-one to receive haloperidol or placebo. The Haloperidol was dosed at 2.5 milligrams IV three times a day scheduled, but they still had some as-needed 5 milligram IV doses uh, given via clinician discretion. So, but basically uncontrolled agitation would be the um, in the uh, implication or the thought there. And then uncontrollable delirium could be treated with open-label rescue medications, uh, propofol, benzodiazepines, or dexmedetomidine. And that was at the clinician discretion as well. Um, the study drug was stopped when a patient was deemed to not have delirium, right? So they tested negative on those scales and they screen, right? The part of the whole screening process is you do it once a shift. So they, they continually screened and, and, um, were, you know, treated or not treated accordingly. Uh, the primary outcome was a composite of days alive and out of the hospital, a 90 days post randomization. Um, notable secondary outcomes. There were, there were a bunch, but delirium and coma free days, uh, haloperidol adverse effects and the number of patients requiring rescue medications. So calculating that sample size, the, the researchers, um, estimated they would need a thousand patients to achieve 90% power. So I like pointing out that it's 90% power. Cause I think a lot of the studies we talk about now um, are more 80%, right? It's just going to be less 
more likely you get something due to chance there. So it's 90%. So the authors, they're doing everything they can to have this uh, powered appropriately. Now, they needed 1,000, and they got 1,000. 1,000 patients were enrolled from February 2018 through March 2020. Um, Now, uh, for the outcome assessment, dropped a little bit to 987, uh, but still right there. Uh, So, Grace, what did I miss uh, fill in kind of some of those gaps and let us know what these researchers ultimately found. Yeah, so, you know, you really covered everything. And, you know, the main thing that I wanted to really highlight was, you know, something they didn't do in the Mind USA study when they screened for delirium once a day. You know, these authors recognize that delirium fluctuates and changes throughout the day. So they made a point to want to screen these patients at least twice a day. Um, So I wanted to emphasize that really. And so their primary outcome was a composite looking both at days alive and days in which those patients were out of the hospital at 90 days. And so looking at the primary outcome as a composite, there was no significant difference. But breaking those down and looking at the secondary outcomes, we actually saw a lower all-cause mortality in that Howell Paradox group. 36.3% 36.3% compared to 43.3% in that placebo group. Now, they did also look at the length of hospital stay, uh, which looked to be a little bit longer, maybe in that haloperidol group, 28.8 days compared to around 24 in the placebo group. Uh, and days alive, again, um, tending to favor the haloperidol group. Uh, days alive without experiencing either deliria or coma was just around 57, 58 days compared to just around 52 in that placebo group. Um, There was more time spent off of mechanical ventilation in that haloperidol group right around 58 days and uh, compared to 54 days in that placebo group. Now, they did also look at some adverse effects. um, And unsurprisingly, there was a slightly higher incidence in some of the uh, patients receiving haloperidol, specifically as it relates to serious adverse events, which they uh, described in their uh, appendix section as being, you know, requiring uh, emergency intervention. Um, You know, they included ventricular tachycardia as one of those as an outcome for torsades. Uh, It did look like the placebo group required some more rescue medication, about 62% compared to 57% in the haloperidol group. Um, But I was pleasantly surprised to see that Uh, the days in which they required rescue medication was relatively low, just around three days uh, between both groups. Um, And a relatively low uh, number of the patients had to stop therapy uh, due to QTC prolongation. So about two and a half percent in that haloperidol group compared to just around one and a half percent in the placebo group. Yeah, it's certainly an argument for, you know, we can get into and we will in just a sec kind of the the efficacy and that primary composite outcome, but it's certainly showing that it's pretty safe, at least compared to, you know, it, it has some risks, but the risk of serious adverse effects were kind of similar between the haloperidol group and placebo and, and those rates of, of other adverse effects, you know, relative to ICU patients, I think it's, you know, nothing crazy or, or unexpected. So, it kind of leads us into the efficacy discussion. And I think this is, um, it's a, it's a, it's a polarizing question. And so Grace, I don't certainly expect you to have the, the 100% 
answer. But I guess my question is, you know, how how should we be interpreting this significant change in mortality with haloperidol? Is this hypothesis generating? Should we be using more haloperidol? Like, what do we kind of do? What should we do with this finding, knowing when you mentioned that that primary, the composite outcome of it did not meet significance? And I was asking myself that same question because I got pretty excited the first time I read this study. It all seemed like, you know, maybe we should be using haloperidol a little more frequently. Um, But reading through the supplementary appendix, I, I did notice, though, that they had 24 patients where some of that data was missing. And uh, it seems like after the fact, the fragility index for this particular paper was also for four patients. And so to me, that adds maybe like an entire container of salt there uh, when it comes to interpreting these outcomes, because, you know, as much as I would like to think that you know, we could be better serving our patients, you know, giving them haloperidol. I don't necessarily know if this will change my practice. Uh, And so for that reason, I would definitely treat this more as hypothesis generating, but it does make me feel a bit better to know that I may not necessarily be putting these patients at some undue risk by giving some haloperidol if they need it. I love that you brought that up. For those who may be less familiar, the fragility index it's essentially a statistical method saying how many patient status would need to change for that to become non-significant, right? And so what Grace is saying is that if four if four patients in that haloperidol group did not die, then that would probably then it would not be significant anymore. So really fragile and showing that, yeah, I'm kind of of the same thought of you that this doesn't necessarily change my mindset. It's really on prevention. And treatment, I like that this is, it gives, it's giving good safety signals, but that I have a hard time believing any treatments are going to show huge benefits one way, one way or the other, like comparing truly just the medication um, versus placebo. Now, a lot of times, you know, the the authors, they talked about rescue medications and having PRN, you know, haloperidol, um, you know, five milligrams as needed. So, did the authors differentiate at all between hyper and hypoactive like delirium in these patients? Do we know, like, do we know if one subset, you know, has worse outcomes than the other, would that have mattered? Like talk, did the authors differentiate that at all? So it seems like there was better efficacy seen in those patients with hyperactive delirium. And I would say in my practice, and I'm sure I speak for many people, you know, we tend to, pull these agents out when we do have patients that are, you know, extremely agitated and putting either themselves or some of the staff at risk. And so um, to me that this aligned quite nicely in terms with actual practice, uh, that there seemed to be some improved outcomes in those patients with more hyperactive presenting delirium. And that's kind of always been my hypothesis as to why the Mind USA study didn't necessarily show the benefits that we thought it would because they had a high rate of hypoactive delirium. And I think trying exactly. to treat that, right, if at least we're seeing possibly some benefit in this study, and it would make sense that they would have more um, hyperactive patients. Now, this is these are from European countries, right? So from an external validity perspective, from these, the, the patients that they included, do these seem like our classic U.S. patients, or is it one of those where we should kind of put a little asterisk next to it? 
you know, I was asking myself that same question and I wasn't entirely sure how to think about these patients as being different um, just because I'm not entirely familiar if they use a lot of the same agents that we do in terms of sedation. And I, you know, it seems like they used a lot of PRN benzos as well uh, for some of that breakthrough agitation, which, um, you know, we know can sometimes worsen delirium, right? Which we try to avoid that uh, in many cases. Um, so again, to me, a lot of this is with a grain of salt, but I'm curious to hear what your thoughts were in terms of uh, applicability. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Um, you know, I think especially with with a, a study like this where there's um, so much treatment appropriately, right, in a sedation study that's left to the clinician discretion in it, like the, the PRNs and even the rescue medications, that it feels like if you're doing that all internationally and they don't have the same practice style, it's going to be hard to, to generalize some of those things, especially because like you said, you know, they're giving some benzos, which we know, right, are, are some predictors of, of delirium and things. So um, I, I always kind of have it of like, I don't completely ex, like discredit everything they find, but it's one of those of like, you're not going to see me with like a haloperidol like pin or like, you know, or I'm not going to be jumping on the like Haldol for everybody trains kind of one of those of like somewhere in the middle. Right. It's not terrible. Yeah. It's not, it's not the best ever, right? Somewhere kind of in between. Um, now taking this, a unique example for a trial of the week. Normally we're looking back a couple of years. So we're only, where are we now is one year from when this was published. But, um, if you were a, a learner or somebody who was new in critical care or things, you may be listening and you may be looking at the PADIS guidelines and things and you're like, hmm, why are we even still using antipsychotics like haloperidol for delirium treatment when some trials and guidelines, they don't, they don't recommend it and then they, don't even, they suggest not using it altogether like the PADIS guidelines do. Why do you think we're still using it? You know, I think the bottom line is that we are trying to use it to keep the patients and the staff safe. And as tough as it is, right, you know, we always want to be thinking about, can we give some Presidex instead? You know, are we making sure that their pain is adequately controlled and covering all of our bases before we get to the point where we need to pull out an antipsychotic? But a lot of the times, you know, I have a patient now where, you know, we're trying so hard to tee him up for some extubation, and we think so much of his agitation could be driven by the fact that he's intubated. And so it's the cycle, and we really just need to try to break it, um, you know, so that we can hopefully try to minimize some of these other modifiable factors that are within our control. And one of the things that, that working in the ED has taught me is that when people are dealing with, like, acutely agitated, right, we're dealing with the hyperactive patient, it's just like any of us, your muscle memory goes to the thing you're most comfortable with. So if you have docs that have been working in your ICU for a decent amount of time, or maybe that's what they trained with, or, or there could be a multitude of reasons why people are comfortable with one agent, but unless there's real signs of harm or things, right? At the end of the day, you're probably going to use what's more comfortable. Like, um, Try having one of your nurses reconstitute a new medication as this patient in severe like delirium is pulling at lines and people are hulking. That's not the time, right? So people are going to go to what they can, what they're used, what they're most familiar with. And sometimes that's how a paradol. So it's, it can be, I wanted to ask that because I think it's a question that comes up a lot and I don't think there's a great answer other than 
well, our prevention of delirium, our tactics failed. And so now we're having to treat it. And I think it's just a big, a big emphasis for prevention. Um, so from, we talked about the safety signals from this eight ICU study and bringing in some of like the other evidence, um, does it feel like the use of antipsychotics are safe in this setting? Are there safety concerns either from individual studies or with individual agents that we should be thinking about? So we've seen in a couple of the different studies, right? Everyone is keeping a close eye on QTC prolongation. And we know, especially as pharmacists, that it's when we have these other QTC prolonging meds on board in addition, that's when we need to be most concerned. But to me, this is a very quantifiable risk. We can get EKGs regularly and we can assess and monitor, you know, where patients are and optimize their electrolytes to try to mitigate that risk. We also saw in the Mind USA study that, you know, they reported some patients experiencing some of these extrapyramidal symptoms, but this was primarily in that ciprazidone group. And so I think that also, you know, lets providers turn towards using Haldol as their, you know, their comfort, their safety blanket uh, again. And so, you know, we also see that more so with, you know, continued ongoing use. So if we have a patient who we're giving PRN Haldol to regularly, maybe it's a sign we need to try some alternative tactics here. But for the most part, I feel like a lot of this we can monitor at the bedside at the very least and, and feel as though we're able to, to watch as our patient progresses. So closing out the, the eight ICU trial of the week, I wanted to end with a lot of times we talk about what future studies are in progress or are being done. But I guess my question here is less about being trials that are being done and more in your opinion, what should the focus of our delirium research be? Should it be on our treatment, treatment comparisons, or should it be more looking at prevention and prevention strategies, high risk patients, things like that? You know, I will say over and over again, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Um, and so, you know, I think we really need to be actively doing everything that we can to try to minimize putting our patients in the position to become delirious. And so making sure that our teams are utilizing that ICU liberation bundle, trying to reorient these patients every day, making sure that we're attentive to any sort of sensory impairments that they might have, getting them up and out of the bed if possible, and really trying to maximize good sleep hygiene. I know, you know, Dr. Moshe Hebner has been on the pod a few times, and she is the queen of uh, modifying sleep and optimizing that in the ICU. And so I feel her voice in my head every day when I'm trying to appropriately time these meds overnight so patients can sleep for more than two hours at a time. Is I can only imagine when a new nurse goes on to Mojda's unit, um, is does Mojda like sit down and have like a 30 minute discussion on sleep? Does it just happen one minute a day for their first third? How, how does that work? Because I imagine the things she's emphasizing, there's probably nurses that have worked at other units that feels like a foreign language. Some of the things that she's saying. Oh, I'm sure. But you know, it's always <laughs> a great opportunity to educate the team. So everyone's always so eager to listen and it really helps keep, you know, the attending providers engaged too. But, you know, Moshe is just so wonderful that, you know, she's, she could give this speech a thousand times and everyone's going to want to do exactly what she's saying. So, well, Moshe is great. You are also great. Grace, very thankful to have you on, um, our 
first annual resident of the year award winner, uh, no longer resident, uh, living her best life out in Massachusetts. You find her at Grace Erdman. Uh, Grace, thanks for joining. Uh, appreciate your time and expertise. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. Very big thanks to uh, Grace for coming on the podcast. What an awesome guest host. Uh, let Grace know what you think at Grace Erdman. Uh, I always love feedback as well at Pharmacy to Dose or via email Pharmacy to Dose at gmail.com, right? Reference list with some of those articles that we discussed, the guidelines, um, and much more. It's in the podcast episode description, right? The link you click on when you listen to it, uh, as well as PharmacyToDose.com, that updated website. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmacy advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmacy advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call nine one one, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the Critical Care PRN disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.